Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll make sure you get one. Ephesians chapter 2. Man, this is, uh, as I say every week, it's like, man, this, this is incredibly impactful stuff. I mean, the, the content of Ephesians is just unbelievable. I've been learning so much. God has been transforming my life so much about the riches in Christ. The series is called Rags to Riches. And what God has done in our lives is amazing. If you're here this morning and you're just not totally blown away by what God has done in your life, what He's, what he's doing in your life, then, you're, then you don't understand it. Then, then you need to read the book of Ephesians because it explains to us everything that God has done for us. And the fact is that we have everything in Christ right now, presently. Like we're not waiting for heaven to become everything that he wants us to be. We can do that right now. We have it now positionally. And in fact, we'll see this morning, God sees us positionally as 100% unified as one body. Practically speaking, well, well, we're not quite there yet, but we're working on it. And that's the whole point of sanctification. But, but God has given us incredible riches, and he wants us to understand that. Now, if you were here last week, if you missed it, go to our website. Go to, you know, ccolumbia.org or go to our, our iTunes or, or Google Play and pick it up. But we talked about how grace changes everything. The fact that God has given us his grace and how that is, you know, life-changing for us. It, it literally changed everything. In the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we were reminded that without God's grace, we are hopeless. Without God's grace, we are hopeless. But through God's grace, we can accomplish anything because He is at work for us and in us and through us. What an amazing thing God has done in giving us His grace. We find that through Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. And that means because of grace, we are adopted into a family into a community. God has created you to be in community, not just with Him, but with each other. And as we continue on in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we find Paul reminding us that we were created for community, that there shouldn't be divisions. And although we are a diverse group of people, we ought not be divergent. We ought not be going a different direction than the rest of the body. We're supposed to be unified, all going the same direction, with one heart, with one voice, with one purpose, to make Him known, and to know Him and to make Him known. That is the whole point of us gathering together. Through the cross, Jesus Christ has taken our diversities, and He's brought them together for strengths. They are no longer to be divisions in the body, but they're meant to benefit each other in every one of us. Listen, you have unique giftings. You know, some people might see them as weaknesses. Some, some people might see them as irritants. But listen, God has created your personality the way that he has for a purpose. You know, as iron sharpens iron, so, one, so does one man to another. We need to have those people in our lives that are not afraid to tell us what's go, where we're at and what's going, hey, this is what I'm seeing. I'm sorry, but here's the deal. You know, in love, of course, we just don't want sandpaper. We want it to be brought to us, not coded, but we want it to be in full strength gospel truth, but we want it to be in love. It has to be in love. Otherwise, it's a clanging symbol. But, but God is using your personality. He made you that the way that you are. 
Don't look at, look at it as if God, you're wishing God would have made you somebody else. No, he made you you because he, he wants you to be a minister in, of the gospel in the body of Christ. And he uses your personality to do that. So don't be trying to be somebody else. Be who you are. That's who he created you to be. He can use your diversity as a strength in the body of Christ. He create Jesus Christ through the cross is our unifier. He is the thing that brings us all together. Colossians chapter 1 says he holds it all together. Uh, we'll see here today that he is the capstone. He's the cornerstone. He brings it all together. He keeps it all together. It's not about the church trying to keep it all together, hold it all together. That's Jesus' job. Your job is simply to do this, to be unified in him. And that's what we're going to learn this morning as Paul reminds us these things. So stand with me, if you will. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace that might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for how you're going to use it in our lives to remind us of all the glorious riches that we have in Christ. Lord, we have so much, and let us this morning unveil our hearts to it, Lord. Speak directly into our lives in places, Lord, that we are holding back, that we are trying to find, you know, victory or peace or comfort whatever it might be, Lord, that you would speak into those areas of our lives and help us to know that we already have it. We are possessors of the victory and strength of Jesus Christ. We have been given your spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We have the power of God within us. We have been reconciled through Christ, Lord. Help us today to understand what that means for us. We ask you to just... Train us up. Change our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. In 2017, researchers from Yongshi University in Korea and the University of California, Santa Barbara, asked 500 students this question. What three, verse, what three words come to mind when you think of happiness? What three words come to mind when you think of happiness? They found that among the Koreans... 
the most popular word was family. But among the Americans, they favored words such as smile and laugh, and in general were less likely to include words that referred to other people. When they did refer to other people, they were more likely to say friends than family. So Americans were found to be less relational. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment. There was another study that was conducted by researchers at UC Berkeley. Same year, 2017. Everybody was looking for happiness that year, apparently. But they found that a lack of social support directly affects our potential for experiencing happiness. And not only that, but has a negative effect to our physical and emotional health and overall, uh, well, and overall well-being. They concluded in the study that, listen to this, we were built to really seek social companionship and understanding. Now, these data, along with a plethora of other studies, conclude that relationships are linked to happiness. Why? As the researcher said, we were built for community. We were built for relationship. Our souls crave relationship. And when we are not in genuine, true, gospel-centered relationship, our souls are con will continue to crave God put that kind of a void in your heart, in your life, so that you would understand that life is more than about you. That you need more than just you. It's in our DNA. Now, you and I were created in the image of God, yes or no? Yes, we were. Uh, and, and what we find is that God's image is, is portrayed for us in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says there that, you know, let us make man in our image. So we're made in God's image. What is God's image there uh, portrayed as? It's plural. The image of God is plural. Three people in one. We know this. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. We know that the Godhead is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also know that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are equally one within the Godhead. We also know that they are one in the Godhead. What am I saying? What I'm saying is, is that uh, God himself is community in three people. You and I were created in his image. Therefore, we are created for community. Now, when you look back at the creation account and you read Genesis chapter 1, you know, and you're just reading uh, on the first day God made this and that and, and, and it was good. And he continued on throughout the creation story. It was good. It was good. Everything that God was creating was good. But when you come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, something changes. God creates man. And notice what he says there. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, now God saw that man in and of himself, although he was created in the image of God, there was not complete. He needed a companion. He needed what? relationship. This is not simply speaking about marriage because we understand that not everyone's called to be married, but we do know that we're all called to be part of community. And so what we find here is God saying it is not good for man to be alone. Isolation is your enemy. 
And isolation is the enemy's strength for, against you. You know, when you look at a wolf, a wolf doesn't attack a pack of whatever it is that he's going to attack, sheep, right? He waits till a sheep is isolated from the pack. Then he attacks. That's what the enemy does to you and I. He waits for us to be isolated. Isolation is not your friend. We find that we were created for community even in the prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. He said this in verse 21, that they may all, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So we were created for community with God and with each other. He created us for that. Now, we are in absolute need of it. Then why don't we act like it? Why don't we act like we are in absolute need of each other? Because of sin. Because of sin. Paul Tripp said it this way in his book, Wider Than Snow, Meditations on Sin and Mercy. We weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God and in a loving and humble interdependency with each other. Our lives were designed to be community projects, yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all that we need within ourselves. So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual. We defend ourselves when people around us point out a weakness or a wrong. We hold our struggles within, not taking advantage of the resources God has given us. Is that true? That is very, very true. I hate to say it, but I've been in many, many places, different cultures around the world, and I hate to say it, but Americans are the worst at this. Americans are the worst at being independent and self-sufficient, and I think that's on purpose. I was just surfing the web, you know, as I was studying, and I came across this website that I was just, I was like, wow, this is so exactly what I think. Here's the thing. It was an international website that was, our international website for, or it was a, an American website that was catering to international students, trying to woo them into, you know, America. And here's one of the reasons why you need to, you know, come to school in America. And here's what it says literally. The very first point, the very first strength that Americans have U.S. Americans are encouraged at an early age to be independent and develop their own, go own goals in life. They are encouraged not to depend on others, including their friends, teachers, and parents. They are rewarded when they try harder to reach their goals. You want to know why Americans are so depressed? Because we created a culture that is essentially a culture of humanism which produces individualism which produces depression and loneliness. That's why, that is exactly why we are, uh, you know, dealing with what we're dealing with in our culture today. Dr. Barton Goldsmith said this, loneliness and depression are the new killers. Recent studies show that either one or both can be dangerous to your life, more dangerous to your life than obesity or using tobacco products. That's a scary discovery. For over 40 million people in the United States have been diagnosed with depression. 
The number of people coping or trying to cope with loneliness is unknown. And that feeling of not belonging is depressing all by itself. He's, he's saying at least 40 million people are dealing with loneliness, probably more. Why do you think the kids in our culture today are cutting and, and suicide rates are soaring? Why do you think that, that that's happening? It's a social epidemic right now. According to Gregory Plemons from the Associate Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at Vanderbilt, said regarding youth suicide rates that it may have something to do with the climbing rate of depression and loneliness among young people. The prevalence, listen to this, of social media may also play a part. You see, what we did was we had a culture that's cre- that, you know, we're, we're human beings that are created for community. We know this. We're created for relationship. So what we did was rather than become dependent and interdependent upon each other and create that culture, we created a false culture. It's called social media. What we did was we said, let's be in control of the content that we let out about ourselves. Let's not really do life together. Let's have a portrayal of what we want everybody to think our life is like. So we're going to create this platform in which we can go ahead and, and create a self-image of ourselves, the best picture that we can possibly be of ourselves. And then we're going to try and create community within that, and people will, will flock to it. It happened. It's exactly what happened. You know, I think part of the epidemic with young people is the fact that they spend at least nine hours a day on social media, that they've created community with a device or with a screen and not with a person. God didn't create us to have community that way. There's nothing wrong with social media. That is not the problem. The problem is the human heart. The problem is the lack of willingness to be vulnerable because we have a culture that says, you know, you have to look this way. You have to portray these sorts of things. You know, don't be weak, be strong. And unfortunately, it is... is, to our detriment, to the detriment of our children, to the detriment of our young people. And now they have this false perception of what community is. Community is only lived out. Listen to this, eyeball to eyeball. That is community. There is, you, you can be connected, you can stay connected to a community through social media, through you know, live streaming, all this kind of stuff, but you're called and created to be in real authentic community eyeball to eyeball. So, you know, that is part of the issue. Our, key, our kids need more of that. Our kids need more interaction with people. They obviously need Jesus. That's a given. But even, even those who have Jesus are struggling with depression and loneliness. Why? Because they're, 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 they're losing out on the, the, the other aspect of it, and that's community with each other. Man, my life's so busy, I don't have time for community. Listen, you have to make that a priority in your life. You have to make it a priority in your life. We're going to see that Christ has already given you community. He's already made you a part of a body. He's already given you everything you need to be in community. The question is, will you, will you be in community? Are you going to prioritize your life in such a way that you can be not only in community with him, but community with each other? Ed Stenser, you know, continues to go on uh, regarding this. He said, we live in a society that is obsessed with autonomous individualism. The idea that all I need is myself and I can make it on my own. This lie keeps people from connecting to one another and, sl- and is slowly killing their souls. Many of, the, um, many of the most 
individual uh, influential sins of our culture, pornography, greed, failure to take responsibility, are fostered in the context of radical individualism. If we listen, we can hear the echo of Genesis. It is not good for man to be alone. God didn't design people to live outside of community. Listen, now these guys, who cares what they think, but what does the Bible say? Well, Solomon said it exactly what they said. He said in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, <clears throat> one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You can continue to read through that. It's talking about not just marriage, but it's talking about being in community with each other. It's talking about being in relationship with each other. As we come to Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 15, that's exactly what Paul said. God has called us into community and he has unified us so that we can be in community. He, listen to what he says in verse 15 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. It, you know, why did Christ do all this? That he might create in himself one man in place of the two. You see, there's cultural barriers. There are issues that, there are things that divide the culture. Not only do we have a false sense of community through social media and all, but we also have real walls of division between people, people groups. Obviously, the division group, you know, in the Bible in ancient biblical times was the fact that you were either a Jew or a Gentile. That was the, it was a racial barrier you know, and it also had with, with religious tones, right? So if you were a Jew, you kind of prided yourself on the fact that you were a Jew and that you weren't a Gentile who was a pagan, you know, heathen. So you were thankful to God for that. And so that became a cultural barrier that was very difficult to penetrate. Even if you were to become, you were a Gentile who would convert and become a proselyte, right? You, you through, through circumcision and baptism, and you dedicated yourself to the Lord, you still couldn't fully worship with the Jew. You know that. There were walls of separation even within the temple. What we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, is Paul saying all of those divisions are gone. There is neither Jew or Gentile in the body of Christ. He has removed those divisions. Galatians chapter 2, verse 28, there is... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. We just, we just read that about seven, seven, eight weeks ago. You know, the fact that Christ has broken down every division, every wall that separates human beings. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't deal with those walls today. We do, right? I mean, there's social walls in our country today. There's political walls. There's religious walls. There's all kinds of walls. But what we have to understand is that, and we have to be careful as believers, that we don't let those walls separate us, that we don't let that come in between uh, those who belong to Christ. You know, there are walls within the church doctrinally that separate, but, but that's not supposed to be the case. Jesus came to bring us together, to unite us, that the two shall become one. I don't care what the division is. His purpose is that whatever we're dividing over, that we should 
get over it and let the two become one. He wants us to be one with each other, not at the sake of truth. But oftentimes, you know, we allow things that really, at the end of the day, are a matter, doctrinally or, or whatever, are a matter of opinion to separate us. Why? That's pride, isn't it? Isn't that saying, well, what I think is better than what you think? Therefore, I'm not going to associate with you. We allow, social, we allow economics to, you know, I have more money than you, so I'm not going to hang out. What are we doing? It's not what Christ called us to. He called us to be part of a body. Paul is going to remind us of three things in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through, 12, uh, through 22. Firstly, he's going to remind us of our alienation, that we were all alienated at one point, verses 11 through 12. Then he's going to remind us of our emancipation, verses 13 through 17, and finally our naturalization in verses 19 through 22. Let's begin by remembering our alienation. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh, made in the flesh by, the hand, by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Now Paul reminds us of our alienation. Now he's speaking specifically to believers, to Gentiles specifically in Ephesus. He's saying you were once alienated. That literally means you were estranged. And we find the estrangement twofold here. We were alienated from each other and from God, first from each other. Notice the alienation that Paul first mentions here is between Jew and Gentile. However, again, you could apply this to any division that, that is in amongst us as men. It's no secret in this culture that Jews hated Gentiles. They, they did not like them. They considered them vile, godless people. They were uncircumcised. Man, that, that's like uh, calling, you know, if you were... If you were from the North Pole, that's like calling somebody a cotton-headed nigga-muggins, you know? I mean, that's what, that's what Elf said in the movie. I don't know. You cotton-headed nigga-muggins. I don't know what it means, but apparently it's offensive. So if you called somebody uncircumcised in this culture, it was, it was offensive. We would think like, oh, we know what that means. Who cares, right? But no, it mattered. It mattered in this culture. It was a big deal. Um, you know, and, and the, the reality is it, it divided people. If you were uncircumcised or you were circumcised, you were part of a people group. The point of circumcision, we know what it is. It is an, it's, it's identification that you have cut off the flesh for the Lord, that you belong to the Lord, that you've cut off the flesh. Now, you know, this is a powerful and I would add painful illustration. One of which many of the Jews never really displayed correctly. It wasn't simply an outward action, but it was supposed to illustrate an inward heart. It wasn't simply to just cut off the flesh physically, but it was supposed to be connected to a spiritual truth, which was God circumcised my heart, cut the flesh off from my heart that I would serve you with, all, with everything that I am. And yet many of the Jews missed it. That's why Jesus, when he came in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke to them about the difference between outward acts and inward acts. You know, oh, you, you, you say that, you know, you're so righteous and all, and, you know, but, but yet 
I tell you, if that you get angry with a person, that you've sinned, that you've murdered them in God's eyes. Jesus was helping them to understand that it's not simply an outward action, but everything's connected to an inward heart. That God is not just simply looking for outward conformancy. He's looking for an inward change. He's looking for us to be genuine. Right? And so the Jews didn't really uh, display that, and yet they still separated themselves and felt like, you know, hey, there was a spiritual pride with their outward actions. Like, look how righteous I am, and you're simply a Gentile. Do you know that they would wake up in the morning every day, and the liturgy of, of the day, the prayers of the day were, Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Lord, thank you that I'm not a woman. And Lord, thank you that I'm not a slave. You know, the arrogance of the Jew. You can see the division that that would create. And, and I would tell you that spiritual pride will separate you from people. Spiritual pride will separate you from people. This was never meant to be um, something that separated the, these people in the way of never, you know, in the way of spiritual pride. It was meant to separate them physically so that God could say, this people group belongs to me and I'm working through them. You know, it, it's amazing. And yet Paul tells, these guys became elitists. Now, they, the Gentiles were separated. They were alienated from the Jews. Just like you and I were alienated from each other at one point. There'd be no reason for us to be in a, a room together, folks, without Christ. We wouldn't be here. We would, we would find the same people group that we like to that, we, that, that think like us, that are like us, and we would, we would gravitate towards them. Let that not be the case in the body, that we gravitate towards people that only are like us. The point is that we come together as a body and look for the diversity and allow it in your life because God uses it to change you, to make you more like Jesus. These guys were separated. They were alienated not only from each other but also from God. Look, it says Gentiles had no hope of Christ saving them. They didn't have Christ. They had no hope. Why? Because the Messiah was a promise to the Jews. Not only to stay with the Jews, but it would to the Jews first. We know that that's what the Bible tells us. In this culture, they weren't looking for a church to be established. In this culture, there was one people group, the Jew, who were God's people, who were the ones that would be redeemed, that would be saved. And if you wanted to be redeemed or saved, then you would have to come through them, right? You would have to convert. And God certainly made that possible. He didn't exclude anyone from being part of that. However, there was a requirement. You had to surrender to him. You know, the, the idea of converting to Judaism, it was a, there, was a, there was rituals involved in it. There was commitments involved in it. You know, you had to commit your life to it. It wasn't a halfway kind of thing. Just like when you come to Christ. It's the same thing. There is a commitment re required. It is a turning over of everything that you are to Him. But the Jews weren't given the Messiah. Or, uh, the, the Messiah wasn't given to the Gentiles. It was given to the Jews first. We know it became available to Gentiles. But as it was presented by the Jew... They, had, they didn't have Christ. They would have never known about Christ. They would have had no need for Christ because they didn't understand God's standards. That was the purpose of the Jews. Now, many Gentiles became God-fearers. 
but they would not become proselytes. Why? Because of the arrogance of the Jew. Because they wouldn't fully commit to that because of the culture of Judaism. They said, I fear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will not be like those people. So I will not convert over. And there's many people in our culture that are the same way, that are God-fearing but won't become Christians because of the people. Now, that's no excuse. If you're not a Christian, you, you can't make that a, an excuse. But, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, there is, we, we can become a barrier to people coming to Christ by the way that we treat each other, by the culture that we have. This is a sad state for the Gentiles. They are without Christ. One guy said they are Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. They have no hope. But I love the word therefore in the very first part of verse 11 there. It connects the work of God's grace as defined in verses 1 through 10 to these people who were once far off. Therefore, in other words, it was God's grace that although you were alienated, you were a Gentile, you were separated from the possibility of coming to Christ, you didn't have Christ, but because of God's grace, you can. It was God's grace. It was a work of God's grace. And through God's grace, Paul not only says that we are reconciled to God, which is a huge part, but we are also reconciled to each other. That we're reconciled to each other. God's grace is defined as uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And listen, it is so powerful and so effective that it can take any division that you have and cause the walls to fall down. I mean, you think about Jericho, Joshua leading the children of Israel and the walls falling down. That's literally what Christ has done for you. Every wall of division ought to just crumble at his name. He causes every wall to fall. Listen, God through Christ can make any two people one. And we, we see it happening. You know, you have, you have Messianic Jews that have come to Christ and they're now, they're now having fellowship with Palestinians. You know, you have people who were once Muslim who come to Christ who are fellowshipping with the very people they were persecuting. How does that happen? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that's how that happens. Paul reminds us of our alienation so that he can remind us of our emancipation. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were, who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. But now, but now reveals God's intervention into our storyline. Did you notice the phrase there that was repeated a couple times in verses 18 through 13 through 18 here, you who were afar off, 
you who were far off. He's saying Gentiles were once alienated in a hopeless state, so far off that they would have no hope, but through the blood of Jesus Christ, hope came to those who were once alienated. The blood of Christ is the reconciler of all human alienation. It becomes our means of emancipation. You know, we are no longer slaves, but sons. The debt is satisfied on your behalf. The walls crumble. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Jesus. You think about the Emancipation Proclamation that happened in our country. Abraham Lincoln declared all men created equal. That therefore, you know, no one's going to own another person. You're going to be free. We declare that. Well, guess what? That wasn't just simply received, was it? There's a whole war that went on because of that. And I promise you that when you are emancipated, there will be a war that goes on for you. There will be a war for that freedom that you're trying to find. It's not going to be that simple that you're just going to, you can walk in freedom, but understand there's hostility towards you. It doesn't go away, and it won't go away. But thankfully, we have it. We've been set free. We've been reconciled to God through the blood of His Son. So you should be thankful for that this morning. We have been emancipated. We can walk in that freedom. The bondage uh, that we were once, you know, shackled in from, with sin and death has now been, we've been separated from that, but we've been brought together with those who we were once estranged by. We were divided and Jesus broke down the walls. Notice, he said, you were once hostile towards each other. Anybody been hostile to a Christian here before, before you became Christ? Listen, there was a dude um, that at my high school, I was a high school, I didn't go to church when I was a kid or anything. So, you know, for some reason I was still kind. I don't know why, the grace of God maybe. But there's this kid that we used to walk up and down the area of our, you know, where all the kids would gather. It was, we called it the strip. And all the kids would drive back and forth, you know, burn their mom's and dad's gas, you know. And, and, uh, so, but, but there was a kid that used to carry a cross, a huge cross, put it on a wheel, would carry it up and down the strip. He preached the gospel to all these high school kids. But, man, everybody was so mean to that kid. He was persecuted, un, you know, just unbelievably. People would throw stuff at him. They'd stop. They'd say stuff to him. They'd stop. They'd literally beat him up physically. He was proclaiming the gospel to these people. Why? They were hostile towards him. Why? Because they're sinners. Sin separates us. Sin separates us not only from God but from each other. But the blood brings us back together. Look how Jesus did it. How did he bring us back together? He abolished the law of commands expressed in the ordinances. What does that mean? Don't misunderstand this for a second that that God abolished the law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. What he did come to abolish was the law that, that manifests itself in ordinances that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. He did come to abolish that, that separation, the barrier that made the Jew feel so prideful and the Gentiles so lowly. He came to, separ- he came to literally everything that, that happened within the temple walls he came to break every one of those walls down. There was, there was a court of women in the temple. There was a court of Gentiles. There was the holy place. There was the holy of holies. 
Listen, there were divisions within the temple that you could only go so far in worshiping. You couldn't all come together, and also none of, none of you could really have access to God, except for the high priest once a year. And if he wasn't right, he ain't coming out. Like, they're going to drag him out. You know, he's going to be dead. But Jesus came to abolish the walls that were set within the temple so that we could freely walk in, not only together, but also have access to the Father. How? Through the Son. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. He abolished these things. He abolished... That, that's why we don't follow the Old Testament, folks. It's cool to go back and look at the feast and follow them and, and you know, partake in some of them and do it, you know, whatever, whatever as a memory to what has happened or whatever. But, but listen, the requirement to follow has been satisfied by Christ and that in and of, of itself is abolished. We are no longer under the law. Now, that doesn't mean that the moral law is abolished. It is not. The commandments of God are the standard of God. Those don't go away. But those things that separated Jew from Gentile, the ordinances, the ceremonial washings, all of those things that would consider a Gentile ceremonial and clean, abolished through Christ, through His blood. And now we, we, are, we come together as a community through the blood, into what's called the new covenant. We are living literally together in the blood of Christ. That's what brings us all together. We are redeemed. We are bought out of slavery. We have access to God now, and we are reconciled to each other. We have been emancipated, and now we have access in one spirit to the Father. The point, one spirit being the Holy Spirit, there's only one Spirit given when you come to Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit literally unifies us. It bears witness one to another that we are His. You know, when you ever met somebody that is a, a Christian that you don't know, and you, you just, you feel like you know them? Like, you're just like, it's so strange. I feel like I know you. I feel like, you know, we've been talking for years, and, you know, that's because you have the same Spirit. So you're in the same family, so that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you're part of the same community, but that is the oneness that we have in Christ. And God can take those that are very diverse, very different from you, and you can experience that same kind of oneness with them. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. It has the capacity to do that. We have access to the Father now. We are now citizens of the kingdom and heirs according to the promise. Now, let me say one thing before I move on. I, I want to make sure that you understand that when God brought the church about that we did not replace Israel. We are still, we are the church. The church is separate from Israel. Now, there is a component Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, where he talks about us being grafted in to spiritual Israel. So the church could also be called spiritual Israel. We are grafted into that. But what you have to understand is that the church does not replace Israel. You know, when we look back, when we look forward, I should say, in the book of Revelation, we find that Israel is the focus. Israel is the focus in the tribulation period. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts. You see, God turned his, heart, his, his eyes away from Israel. They're partially blinded, the Bible says. And there will be a seven-year tribulation period that God will focus upon Israel to draw the nation back to himself. Now, that, that is because God fulfills His promises. 
And he's never forsaken Israel. He's just put them on hold right now. And he is doing what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. This goes to show you, listen, if you won't do what you were created to do, God will bring somebody else to do it. He will do that. If he wants something accomplished, he will make it accomplished. He'll just bring somebody else. You miss out. And how many Jews have missed out on the blessings of bringing Christ to the nations? They were promised Christ, they were given Christ, and they missed out on it. But God is faithful when we are not. And so he will continue to work through the nation of Israel, you know, in the tribulation period. Specifically, he's going to anoint 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, and he's going to use them as messengers. They, they will be the light to the Gentiles. But it's going to be in a terrible, terrible situation. I'm just thankful that we won't be here. We will be in heaven with him. But I needed to say that before we move on to our third point, which is remembering our naturalization. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. Now, this is nothing short of amazing, folks, here, where, where we find those who were once alienated, that's you and I, from God and from each other, now through the blood of Jesus Christ, not only have we been emancipated, we've been set free, the barriers have been broken down, but we have also been naturalized. We have been brought into the family of God. Like, we, there is no barrier now between, you are now a citizen of heaven. If, you, if, you're, you know, if you're a foreigner in our country today, you can become a United States citizen. You have the capacity to say, I want to belong to this people group. I want to be part of this nation, right? There is a process called um, naturalization that you have to go through. And there is an oath that's required for you to take. And here's what the oath says. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States of America when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. Listen to this. And that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. Now, this is the naturalization process to become a U.S. citizen. But I would say to you, this is the naturalization process also to become a Christian. It's no different. You are required, when you come to Christ, to take an oath of allegiance. 
When you become part of the body of Christ, you have said, you have declared Jesus Christ your Lord, that there is no other Lord besides him, that he is your king, that you serve no other. Literally, like it says here, I renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any other king, to the flesh and to this world. I completely and totally cut myself up. I am yours. And by the way, I freely do that. When you become a citizen of the United States, guess what? There's some requirements, right? I mean, you're a citizen, so therefore, you know, you get all the good, but also you, you're called into a life of service at any point in time in which you were called upon. Why? Because you're a citizen. You're a citizen of this country. And you, you, you declared, yes, I will stand up for this country. I will stand up for, you know, I will fight for the people of this nation. Listen, it's no different when you come to Christ. You signed up for service. You signed up to be a bearer of the gospel to a people that are hostile towards you. And notice it says here that you'll even stand up, whether it's a foreign enemy or an enemy within. Listen, you have responsibility in Christ to stand for the gospel. You have a, you have a responsibility in Christ to point out wolves in sheep's clothing. You have a responsibility because you dedicated yourself to the Lord to serve him in whatever capacity he calls you to. That's your responsibility. That, that is your, but it's your privilege. Don't misunderstand. The work that Christ calls you to, it might not be easy, but there is joy in it. There is satisfaction in it. He tells us that we are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, to the Gentile, they must be beaming with hope at this point. Thank you, Lord that I'm no longer a foreigner, that I'm no longer a sojourner, that I am no longer a stranger, an alien. I am part of your citizenship, the kingdom of God, part of the family of God. Now you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You belong here. <laughs> I love the song we sang this morning, talking about, you know, the world's telling me who I'm supposed to be and all this kind of stuff. You know, when I don't feel like I belong, I have to trust your promises. You belong in the body of Christ. He created you for it. He wants all people to be reconciled to himself and to each other. God is not willing that anyone would perish, but all would come to repentance. He longs for us to be in community with him and with each other. So much so that he has sent apostles and prophets to lay a foundation of gospel truth for you and I so that we can today declare, Lord, I am yours. Had these guys not shed their blood for Christ and laid their lives down for the gospel, you know, we may not be here today. But God laid a foundation that was wrought in blood for you and I so that we could have this thing that we have called the Bible here today, the revelation of Jesus Christ to you and I. Don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted. Now, that's also why we don't need apostles and prophets, folks, because the foundation was laid. We're not building on the foundation anymore. The foundation is laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. The prophets and the apostles all pointed us to Jesus Christ. 
That's why we don't need those two titles anymore in the body. Now, now there's prophecy in the sense of the foretelling of God's word. That, you know, this is prophecy in, in, in the sense of the word that it's the forthcoming of God's word to you. But do we have people that are foretelling the truth? Not in the same sense as what was happening in the Old Testament. We certainly don't have apostles. That word means sent ones in the same sense as we, did, we saw in the New Testament. Although, you know, we are sent. If you want to call yourself a prophet, you want to call yourself an apostle, go for it. But it's not in the same context of what he's talking about here. The foundation has been laid. Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. He holds the church together, folks. Without Jesus, man, we're going to tumble apart. And that is why we have to keep Jesus Christ the center of what we do. Because if we don't, this thing falls apart. We are being held together by him. I'm thankful as a pastor, as a church leader, that I don't have to try and hold it all together. That's Jesus' job, right? Th that I'm just called to be part of the community and to, 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 to foster what we can. But listen, everything that he's talking about happens in Christ. It happens in every human heart. It's not part of, you know, we don't create this. It's already created in you. And you just allow it to come out. That's why, you know, as, as you think about church, man, what's going on? You know, how come, how come it feels like we're disjointed? I'll tell you why. And it's not the church leadership's fault. You know what it is? It's every human heart that is not allowing this Holy Spirit to work through you individually to come collectively as a body and to worship Him. That's why churches fold. You know, now granted... <laughs> there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in leadership. I'm not saying that it can happen that way, but I can also say that it also happens as a result of the body not being what it's called to be, unified in Christ. We, we've been given that, folks. We don't have to fight for that. We have it already. And Jesus Christ holds it all together. He is the one that is, the structure is being built upon. You know, we don't have to build the church. Jesus builds the church. But how does he build it? One brick at a time. Yeah, see, that's the problem. People are bricks. They're so hard-headed. You know, hey, you're a brick too. You're a living stone. And, you know, if you go to Israel and you look at the Temple Mount area and you see the stones that were cut perfectly to line up with one another, there is no gap in between them, folks. It is incredible to see how precisely cut these stones were back 2,000 some, whatever, actually way back before that. Way back before that, even out of the exile of Babylon. It's incredible how these stones are laid one on top of the other with no motor, but there are no joints. I mean, it is literally so tight, you can't slip a piece of paper through there. Unbelievable. How does that, that's what God is making you and I. So tightly knit together, that you can't even slip a piece of paper in between. Why do you, you know, you, you go out to California, the, you know, in, in, in Oregon, and you look at the redwood forest. You think, look at how amazing these trees are. You know what makes those redwood trees so amazing? Their root system. Do you know with their root systems are intertwined together? And without that root system being intertwined together, every one of those trees would fall down. But it's the root system that keeps them strong. You, you and I keep each other strong. We are woven together. The root is Jesus. It's an amazing thing. In Him, you also, 
are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now listen, you and I have been given unity already, positionally. Practically speaking, we're still working through it. We're still working through it. This is what I would say to you today in closing. If you see somebody come in this body or who's been in this body and they, they seem like they're on their own, they're isolated, they're outside of the body, will you bring them in? Will you bring them into the body? Will you be a stone that's willing to allow that person to lay on top of you? Listen, that's what we're called to, all of us. It, you know, it, it, we are all unified, and when we see people that are outside the body, our call is to bring them into the body in Christ. You know, if you feel outside the body, if you don't feel connected in the body, you can be. You know, you can be connected. All you have to do is step into it. God, will, God has given you that already. You're part of a community of people. He wants you to be part of that. Listen, there is no reason for any person in any body, I don't care if it's this one or any other body, there's no reason for you to feel disconnected. And it, it can either, you know, the body can be disconnected because they're not allowing the Holy Spirit to work through them, or you could be disconnected, not allowing the, I mean, you know, you could literally have a community of connectedness and still feel disconnected, right? Because it's a human, it's a heart issue. So what I'm saying is, is that if we all work together and we cultivate that community, which Christ has already given us, by the way, and then if I as an individual say, hey, I'm part of that community, I'm just going to be part of it, guess what? There's going to be unity. But if you don't, if each, each member of the body doesn't do its part, then there won't be. So the point of the matter is this, is, you know, the responsibility lies on me as an individual of the body of Christ, to do what I'm supposed to do, to be who I'm called to be. I am part of a unified body, and I certainly don't want to be a rogue member. Right? I don't want to be the guy causing problems in the body. I don't, God's saying, hey, we got a free radical over here. We need to like, remove him from, you know, I don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that person either. But we are called into unity, and Jesus Christ has given that to us. What an amazing thing to be part of the body of Christ. Amen? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.